This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of What Most People Think. Did you, did you, did you clap for Boris? Did you? Did you? Why not? What, what is wrong with you? Why do you hate Britain? Why do you hate the troops? Damn you. Listen, man. I hope that you're doing uh, okay in lockdown. We're back with another episode. This one has an interview uh, with Simon Evans. And anybody that's been listening to the podcast for a while, remember, people really enjoyed the last one. We had a wide-ranging chat and we did some letters. So what I've tried to do here is talk about a bit of politics with Simon. And then we had quite a few letters, so we get through a few of those. But um, I, I have been staying reasonably busy, man. I've been staying reasonably busy. I um, recorded a few things in lockdown. I don't know if anybody... Uh, Checks out my Instagram, but um, I, I, I've got the most bodged-looking home studio you could imagine. It's literally, it's two of my son's toy chests pushed together, right? With the most cruddy-looking old IKEA lamps, which I had to take the shades off because they were just so poor, like, uh, environmentally friendly, low wattage, that I had to take the, the shades off them. It, it does look a little bit like, you know, Charles de Gaulle in his bunker. But, uh, but yeah, I did uh, an episode of The Now Show I did an episode of uh, the Mash Report. Mash Report was fun, you know, because obviously it was a duologue uh, with Nisha. Me and Nisha worked together, so you know we have uh, we know how to do it, right? But with the Now Show, I was recording it. Um, I, I had some chats with the producer. Both these things are still up online, by the way. Um, I had a couple of chats with the producer, and then I recorded it on my own, just like I'm recording this. But idiotically, uh, I did it late at night after I'd had. Um, like a really big curry. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking, man. I had a, um, I had, I had a chicken chow frazy, which I know when you're middle age, you're not supposed to have that curry anymore. Like fresh green shredded chilies. It's not. I just wanted to feel alive. Anyone else said that? Do you know what I mean? I started eating pickled pickled onion monster munch again. I mean, I'm having a diet coke every single day. Anyway, this is besides the point. But I had a big curry. I had pilau rice. I had, I'm actually salivating now as I'm saying it. And I had a naan bread. I just think, like, with curries, it is an absolute fuck you to any attempts to control weight when you have double carbs, you know, like rice rice and and a naan bread, and it was great. But then I went upstairs, uh, sorry, downstairs to my son's room to record it, and I swear to God, it was like I'd been hit by a poison, like, blow dart that just, like, hit me with a lethal dose of uh, of salt and carbohydrates. I was, I was in no shape at all, and then... I listened to it back. I thought it was all right, but then I listened to it back, and it sounded it sounded like I was on ketamine, lying down on my couch. Um, so I had to record that again. But um, but look, listen, thank you for everyone that's downloading the show. I um, I just describe it. it. It's what most people think. It is a show that you know is coming from the the right of centre view, the conservative Britain view. But I was I was gonna withhold hostilities in the culture war for the time being. But I've got to say, in the lot, and I think everybody did for a while. But I don't know. In the last couple of weeks, it's been cranking up a little bit, hasn't it? You know, we've had we've had the re- return of those kind of identity politics articles and the left, even though this this crisis 
is 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 still at very much near the beginning. The left are quite clearly trying to construct a narrative, and I think it's right to to take the government to task for individual things that they've done wrong. But you know, the, the, what they did, good, the good things that they did for the economy have already been completely forgotten. And I, I just I say again, I don't think that you're going to be able to judge the government's overall handling of this while we're still in the first bit of it. But people are trying to do that, aren't they? You see it particularly on Twitter when they go, remember this, remember. You go, yeah, because that's how Twitter works. I mean, forgetting the fact that it's a, a fast-moving, skim-read format, that people are going to, whenever, whenever their next election is, they're going to go, oh, yeah, that geezer on Twitter told me to remember it. And then, we, of course, we had Emily Maitlis, which uh, I ended up chatting about with Simon, which you'll hear later, but... You know, they do that thing on Twitter where somebody says something and then, well, sorry for always talking about Twitter as well. I realise most of you, quite rightly, probably stay, stay well clear of that format. But they do this thing where they say, oh, we are all Emily Maitlis now. What do you mean, we are all Emily Maitlis? I am not Emily Maitlis. I'm quite happy to go back to the olden days of uh, journalism when uh, they kind of just introduced the uh, fucking news. Remember that? That was... Uh, revolutionary approach to news. Well, here's the news. Here's the first story. They didn't start it with some, like, Jerry Springer final thought for you, you know? I, you, you went about that with Nicholas Witchell or fucking Peter Sissons. Oh, by the way, um, I realise I'm swearing here, so it's time to do a swearing update from the last episode. And my friend David Demain, he emails in, because we had this issue where some people like the swearing... Some people didn't. Um, I, I don't know the numbers here. This feels like... Oh, these aren't too bad, actually. Um, so David Domain, he he counts these up in the weekly cuss count. Last week, it was three fucks, one shit, five fuckings... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm immature. It's funny just saying swear words. One prick and one bitch. And he says, does this class as swearing? I don't know. I don't know. To the feminists, is, is bitch a swear word? It, it, I, I guess it... I guess it depends. I don't even remember saying bitch now. Uh, if I said shut up bitch to a woman, then that's sexist. I don't know. I don't know. Email in what most people think at uk at gmail.com. I know I have some of my, my, my lefty snowflakey remainers that, that listen to the show. So tell me, was I being sexist there? Um, but yeah, just going back to the point, like the left kind of cranking it up. Also, Sadiq Khan. I don't know if you see him on um, Good Morning Britain. That geezer would take credit for anything. So they were talking about the Nightingale Hospital. And you would have thought, like having finished watching it, that he he put down he put down some bricks on that one. Not only did he sign it off, he, he was there doing the plastering, the joining, the finishing, the plumbing. He's I mean he's smart, isn't he? But he will he will stand beside whatever he thinks Londoners like. So whether it's banning uh, certain adverts on the tube, he, Sadiq's there. I'm banning them. If he's, he suddenly realised that people like the idea of what's happened in Nightingale Hospital, that was Sadiq that did it. So overall, there is this cranking up or, or, or on discourse. And we also had this thing, you know, I mean, I don't know, we're recording this on, I'm recording this on Thursday afternoon. Hopefully the Prime Minister is continuing his recovery. But, you know, the reaction to some of that as well. Who go, I... I First up, you had the I'm not a Tory's but. Those words actually trended. I'm not a Tory but. Just look, either you want someone to die or you don't want someone to die. You don't have to qualify it. Okay, you're in the you're you're a celebrity. I think we can presume that you're probably not going to just suddenly come out as a Tory. And there, there were people that just thought, yeah, he, uh, I want him to die. I, I, I don't get that. I said it last time. 
wishing people to die has got to be one of the biggest karma risks imaginable. And, it, you know, I had this discussion with my wife, like, is there anybody that is legitimate to wish death upon? And obviously, instinctively, the working class sort of knucklehead in me just goes, paedophiles. <laughs> just paedophiles. You're allowed to wish paedophiles dead. We all know that. That's one we can come together <laughs> together on. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think that, look, man, if you don't realise that, whatever you think of Boris Johnson, right, that the Prime Minister of your country dying during a global pandemic if you don't realize that that's not great then i'm sorry you haven't been paying attention okay um so fuck you to the people we do the thank you and the fuck you fuck you to people that wish boris johnson dead i think it's pretty obvious that and, and you know i'd say uh you know thank you as well in fairness to a lot of people across the political spectrum who who did put aside normal political uh, allegiances i actually saw owen jones wishing the Prime Minister well, and I thought, Jesus, he must be ill, right? He, he must be ill. There's Owen Jones wishing you good health. That must be like the bit where the priest shows up, the Twitter version of that. So, uh, yeah, but thank you. You know, I think it's good that people can recognise what's in the greater good of the country. And just before we get into the chat with Simon, I've been doing, I don't know how many people listen to this, are into Star Wars, but obviously they've got their new series, The Mandalorian, which is streaming on Disney Plus, and me and Romish, we chat bollocks, and we always chat bollocks about Star Wars, so we thought, why not chat bollocks about Star Wars, and film it, and put it on YouTube, so if you go to my YouTube channel, first up, a subscribe would be nice, and, and, and give the video a watch, and give it a like, and if there's any, really, it's two blokes chatting shit, and um, because obviously men, we can't, we can't talk about what we really think, so we have to find coded ways of discussing who we are as people. So I, I enjoyed doing them, and I hope you, you enjoy them too. So listen, first up, uh, well, first up, let's get into the chat with the brilliant Simon Evans. Okay, I'm really pleased to welcome back to the show um, Simon Evans. Simon, how are you doing, mate? Very good, thanks. Uh, Jeff, I'm uh, bearing up very nicely at the moment, I must say. And it sounds like you're standing next to a road. I, I mean, you say you're bearing up. You're not about to fling yourself in front of a lorry, are you? I did just notice, it's funny, I've, I've been working in the, uh, in the basement of our house for a while and I've come out onto the, the sort of stoop up to, uh, you know, like an old-fashioned uh, Harlem old-timer and um, to take the call. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, you know, it's traffic, no traffic, it's all deserted. But since I've kind of sat out here and become conscious of it, there's actually people tearing around in their cars. Obviously, the, the, uh, the locals have started to notice that the police are not, <laughs> not uh, on, on the street corners quite as often as they were, perhaps probably patrolling the beach instead. And, inst and so they've turned the block into a sort of little mini... Uh, uh, 24 hour Le Mans sort of track but there we are well the, if, you, um, if you believe social media today they, they've all moved to Northampton to inspect people's shopping baskets I don't know if you saw, I that. saw that I didn't open the story I saw the headline I do think I mean it's hard to know isn't it I wrote a, a piece in the spectator on the on their website this week about heavy-handed policing but a part of me actually thinks the media is trying to stir it up because they just want to get ahead on the stories all the time and yes. I don't think it's actually helping with the national mood or or the likelihood of us emerging on time or anything at the moment. You know, half, half of the media seem to be like, oh, who's in charge? Is it because Boris is in hospital that we can't all go back to school yet? And it's like, no. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know whether you thought, where you got the idea this was going to be a long weekend and then everything will be back to normal, you know. 
I don't know I what. Really, I'm trying to lose my patience with him. I'm afraid. I, don't, I, I mean, I don't. The, the problem is, is being sort of anti-media and, and, and scrutinising journalists in that way has become to seem quite Trumpian. So I do keep my. Yeah. I do yeah. keep. I do keep quite. However, I totally agree. I, I've looked at those daily presses and I've looked at the the sort of bustling self-importance of the way that people pose questions and sometimes appear to be trying to create rather than establish what the story is and. And I, 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 I go right back to the beginning and wonder if daily press conferences are even needed. Well, I think they're probably needed symbolically, but I think there's, it's very interesting, the dynamics of them. A lot of people have been saying for some time now that it would probably be more helpful if Michael Gove or whoever's hosting it handed over to a scientist quite early on or somebody, somebody with an expert you know, uh, level of insight, a sort of raft of skills and experience, and the journalists themselves were selected on that basis as well. And we could get away from the old-fashioned Westminster Village approach of whose fault is this and who is, you know, and who is uh, letting the side down and who hasn't grasped their portfolio firmly enough and all the rest of it. But there has been, a, um, I think, a noticeable change now that the journalists themselves have to phone it in very much as we're doing, you know, over yeah. the screen using whatever, presumably not Zoom, but whoever, whatever government app has been created in the, in the shed you know, for these purposes, is that they seem to be a little bit less jockeying for position. There's a little bit less sort of, I don't know, personal ego at stake, possibly from the journalists. It's sort of taken the heat out of it a little bit now that the man from The Observer is sort of himself sitting I mean, one thing I, one thing I've come to realise from watching the the live daily presses was that, from a journalist's point of view, is saying your name and your publication is it must be why you get into it in in the first yeah, place. Yeah. In the, in the same way that you would imagine that you know going into law, you just want to do it to say objection essentially, or you yeah. want to be like Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men, like I want the truth, and saying you know no. St- like Steve Swinson, Daily Bastard, is is, yeah. is they must be gutted. It's gone online. It must be all the. Uh, it's the equivalent of the football thing, you know, when you play away at uh, Anfield and you come out of the uh, the dressing room. It says, "This is Anfield" above the door as you go out onto the pitch, just to remind you how much yeah. you should be at that point. <laughs> this <laughs> is yeah. This is News International. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And if you haven't got that, you know, yeah. It's funny though, isn't it? Trump has done an enormous amount of damage to the to credibility of the mainstream media, and however much of it might have been to his own personal aggrandizement, a lot of it has stuck. You know, he's flung mud, and a lot of it has stuck. And a lot of us have scrutinised the the biases. And sometimes it's easier to spot them in the New York Times and the Washington Post than it is. We all know we've all grown up with the idea that you know eighty percent of the press in this country is Murdoch, and the Mirror and the Guardian you know squabble over what's left. And but suddenly now we see all sorts of slightly more nuanced, but but still kind of uninstructive agenda, you know, being pursued by journalists, not even necessarily political, more like journalese, you know, really, mm. just like serving their own function in the, in the whole thing. And um, and it hasn't it hasn't brought them out in a good light. There's a lot of them not having a good war at the moment, if we're honest. I think that, you know, certainly with, you know, we're talking the day after the, the big Emily Haint, uh, Maitlis sort of social justice, yeah. social justice homily. And then the thing is, is like, there's not much in what she said that people would dispute. I certainly think that I don't mind people talking about fighting their way through illness. Again, this is presumption that that doesn't have any value. They, the sort of thing I don't like, 
hearing illness being spoken about that way, but they're sort of ignoring the fact that a lot of people do take that view and do find it motivational to sort of, um, I, I know I, I know that fortitude in and of itself can't beat an illness, but the, the belief in it is something that, pe- that, that makes sense to some people. Um, I have no idea whether it's been proven one way or the other, and it's the sort of thing they think actually this study proves that you know you go well come on you know this is like this is the sort of stuff that gets investigated more efficiently by great fiction you know this is than than, than sort of thirty eight students herded into a room and you know given the flu for the weekend. It the, the use of different metaphors is a personal thing. I I, I bitterly refute the the legitimacy of of anyone telling me what what metaphors I can and cannot use in any given situation. <laughs> this is what makes us human. We all have different ways of framing. There's uh, the guy, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Buffett's right-hand man, I can't remember. Munger, Charlie Munger has got, his, I think it's 96 different models he uses in order to dif- you know, frame any given situation and understand its investment potential. This is how you have to come to the world. You know, we all have a range of, some of us are thinking this is like Harry Potter, you know, and the, the Institute of Magic take on Voldemort or whatever. Others are thinking this is like, you know, the Russian soldiers heading off to, to face Napoleon in, in war and peace. It all <laughs> depends on what you've read and where you've come from. And that is what makes us human. We are allowed to pick our own fucking metaphors in these situations. I mean, there is a certain appeal in Emily Maitlis, you know, looking all stern on television and telling you what, what you know, what you're allowed. I understand the appeal of that to a man of a certain age, but we have to hold on to our right. <laughs> I don't think the martial metaphors, the, the you know, the war, the uh, we have to over, overcome, we must endure, blah, blah, blah. I don't think those are meant to tell people how to respond when they're about to go into a ventilator. I think they're meant to tell the whole of society. Um, the, the thing with Trump is I always think he's not wrong about everything, right? He's wrong. He's almost always wrong in the way that he communicates, but he's not wrong about everything. And I've he's noticed, wrong about himself. That's, that's, that's yeah, the he's, everything wrong. about him is wrong. But, you know, certainly in the way that he questioned uh, certain Western democracies and their, their, their spending in terms of GDP... Uh, on the UN and defence, right? That was a fair. Defense, yeah, that absolutely. Was a, that was a fair point. And similarly, you know, there is there are there are significant questions to be asked of the WHO. Now, of course, you know with Trump that, that his main reason for asking those questions is 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 deflectionary. But what I'm interested in is the way that in it, similarly in the same way that a certain body of people with the EU have this this instinctive defence of supranational bodies, like in the way yeah. they're happy to attack nation states and and obviously Britain mainly. But, yeah. you, you know, instinctively, they think that the WHO is an unstoppable force for good. And I, I don't know why that is. I don't know what yeah, that suggests. It's such a poor grasp of human nature, isn't it? The idea that anyone who represents a national sort of source of authority, the state or whatever, would have some sort of imperial ambitions. But anyone who represents the UN or the WHO or the EU is just a technocrat who's doing it for the greater good of mankind. <laughs> yeah. Just so hopelessly, you know superficial and understanding of what drives any human ambition. But it's interesting. I don't think Trump even initiated the doubts about the WHO. I think they've come under scrutiny from, for a good couple of months. Well, certainly the people I follow on Twitter. There's been plenty of people asking questions about how firmly in bed with China they are since middle of January. You know, I mean, that's, I think that's, I think people are finding it really hard to defend the WHO now. You probably saw that clip of the woman asking about, their response to Taiwan and, and the guy just basically unable to acknowledge that such a, an, an entity exists, yeah. let alone speak about its, um, its measures taken to minimum, which have been very successful, of course, arguably the most successful worldwide and, and the most immediate and, and prescient. 
and he couldn't even, he had to pretend that the line had broken and he couldn't hear the question. <laughs> he was so unable to say, well, of course, he couldn't even say Taiwan is a tricky proposition for us, funded as we are by China primarily. You know? <laughs> <laughs> everyone so everyone would, would have respected that. that. It would have gone, you know what, fair shout. Yeah. He's, he's in a bind there. He really is. He is, yeah. <laughs> That's the great thing about Zoom. You can see their faces change as they make things up. You know, it's like the you can see, you can see the flicker. Um, the one thing, another thing that I've been sort of discussing on the podcast is that I, I've found unusual is, is people wanting to draw uh, overall conclusions as to the, the UK government's handling while the thing is still occurring. Now, obviously, there've been undeniable fuck ups along the way, but sort of my hunch is is that that. that in the end, people will corral together mortality stats, mortality, importantly, mortality stats per million people in the country. And then they'll yeah. also look at how well each each government protected the economy. So what's happening at the moment just feels like people trying to review the film before it's even got past the first act. And Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, before it's even at the cinemas, in fact, you could say. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's absolutely true that. And, and your, your second point is arguably even more key and, 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 and easier to miss. Certainly, all stats should be per capita. All stats should be um, fatalities over and above the normal excess fatalities yeah. at, in this country at this time of year. So if you're looking, for instance, for an extreme example, somewhere that is always hit by a lot of flu and cold weather related mortality, you know, at this time of year or, or would have been in, in March or February or whatever, then you have to adapt to those figures. Statistics is not easy. You know, it's, it, I've been talking to a lot of people who know more about it than me about whether, you know, because, you know, I did my ghost to market radio four series about economics. And yes. I was thinking, we really need to do something like this for pure statistics because statistical illiteracy in this country and across the West is so profound. People leave school with good A-levels, maths A-levels, not understanding Bayes' theorem of, of you know, priors and, and how to understand false negatives and, and false positives and so on. And these are really crucial to having any grasp of what it is you're seeing in front of you on the news on a nightly basis. And, and so the ability to understand what the priors are in, in any given situation, how many people you'd expect to be dying at this point, what age group they are, the, the comorbidities and all the rest of it, which a lot of people try and paint as being kind of indifferent or callous. Oh, he was old anyway. It's not about that. You know, it's just you've got to understand what you're looking at. How, yeah. how potent is this threat? But also, and crucially, you're right, I mean, a country like Sweden, which is taking a great deal of a risk at the moment and is, you know, is quite obviously going to be an outlier in terms of its attempt to keep its economy ticking over. It's going to be very interesting to see whether it's capable of keeping the economy ticking over, right? whether how much of self-isolation is actually just a, a voluntary act on the part of, of people who don't want to expose themselves to risk, regardless of what the government's telling them to do. And also, in 10, 15 years' time even, you know, yeah. how many people are dying 10 years before their time because they were exposed to a worldwide depression? And then, you know, their, their nutrition and their, and their mental health, you know, and, and all kinds of outcomes that, were, that, are, that are well established as correlating with economic health were, were just devastated by the shutdown. I all think, this kind of stuff. It's going, to be, it's going to be decades before it's properly understood. Well, yeah, and I wonder if some of the motivation, and this is, I'm, I'm not saying this, of course, to, to everyone on the left. Of course, we're embedded in this thing of Twitter, which isn't really that representative of anything. But they, it felt like, you know, obviously in December, the Conservatives won this election, which was the Grand Slam, Brexit's going to happen. Uh, the yeah. Tories are going to have a big majority, and, and and it felt put to bed. And then then this thing has happened that that is possibly the only thing in a way that that could have uh, um, put the buffers under that. 
and, and yeah. it does feel like that the, one, war, that's the only two things really isn't it that you can imagine and, and you know like uh, on that note i mean it sort of brings me to, to the the letters in a way there's um we got quite a few actually and um there's a guy called sam from bath now he said uh, there's two things here really one is he said who's the most unexpected person you've found yourself agreeing with he says i found myself agreeing with keir starmer then he says scratch that i've just seen what he said about exit strategies now I don't, know, I don't know. I don't know if you saw this, but Keir Starmer did a video where he sort of said, "I think the government should publish sort of an exit strategy," and and, and I didn't know myself whether it was sort of like Keir's, um, you know, six mythical tests of text, uh, tests for Brexit, where he's being yeah, too right. smart for his own good. He's sort of trying to lay a little booby trap here. I don't believe that he thinks it's wise at all to talk about an exit strategy, but he's quite happy for the government to commit to something they can't possibly deliver. It's, it's so tempting for a leader of the opposition, let alone a brand new one, trying to establish his authority and his, you know, his uh, determination to, you, you know, you just can't help but prop up little buckets of water on, on half-open doorways, can you? <laughs> <laughs> just to go walking through. I mean, I don't know whether it is helpful. I, I honestly don't know. My, my gut feeling is that it might help psychologically if the British people knew that there were some criteria by which we could decide when it was time to come out like were, are they just waiting for a peak or are they waiting for enough masks and ventilators to have been put by and enough ppe for the national health service to be able to cope with the next wave you know if it goes back up again we don't know what the criteria are and it probably wouldn't hurt to feel that it was not simply an arbitrary decision that might quite you know for all we know be waiting for boris to come out and reinvigorate the process with his you know, Labrador-like uh, bonhomie, <laughs> sort of tail-wagging optimism. But um, it's funny. I mean, of all the people, I can't... I, I've always thought Keir Starmer, he seemed like a natural leader in waiting, and I'm, I'm honestly reassured to see him there. I think he's yeah, yeah, equally the most capable and desirable leader that Labour could have picked. However absurd it seemed, I remember having a conversation not that long ago about... Uh, you know, uh, who, who the Corbynistas and who Momentum wanted to see sort of continue the process. And I had no real idea how much of a grip they might still have on the party or the process. So that is reassuring. But um, he's not like somebody that you think, I can't believe I'm agreeing with Keir Starmer. I mean, that's more the sort of Piers Morgan territory, isn't it? And I have... Yeah. Funny, Piers Morgan is one of those interesting individuals as a, as a phenomenon, you know, of our times, who started off just as this rapid showbiz reporter who has then sort of had... You know, he has been the Donald Trump of journalism, self-aggrandizing at yeah. all times, constantly seizing the limelight, making himself the story, completely unabashed about it, utterly nauseating. I just don't get involved on Twitter. I don't follow <laughs> him. I've, been, I've stood short of blocking him. But, you know, you will see it all the time, whether you want to or not. Yes. And yet, in, in recent months, I had found quite often, I was sort of going, he's got a point, you know, yeah. when he would kind of challenge Labour leadership hopefuls about the their endless focus on on you know trans rights and stuff when we when we're you know moving into the most um potentially dangerous you know situation of our lifetimes but he has then stuck he is he swings from one minute i'm thinking yeah he's got a point to the next minute going oh my god i can't believe the pomposity of the man <laughs> well that's that's what one of my issues is is the sort of like uh, regal benevolence with which that he decides yeah. that he's going to do something for the nhs he's sort of uh, you know he's 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 looked at this situation and he's taken a lead and he you know he might be proved right in the end but there's there's both here's the memorial car park ticket machine <laughs> Thank you.
I did think early on in this, like there would be this sort of suspension of some of the old culture war hostilities. I certainly felt that myself. It all seemed uh, a, a bit trivial, you know, like whether you whether you're for or against people using a hundred pronouns. Definitely, pronouns didn't feel like the biggest deal. I have noticed that that it did. It hasn't taken long, and that kind of debate. Has started, it's creeping back in, isn't and it? it's creeping in with me. I got, I got fucking well annoyed earlier. I've, I've done a couple of narky tweets over the last couple of days, and I also, I suppose, I forgot the degree to which those things can make you feel temporarily alive. You know that adrenaline rush of a of a of a nine a.m. tweet that you know you'll be servicing for the rest of the day. Exactly what I, do. I get up in the morning. I go into the uh, into the kitchen, make a couple of coffees, you know, yeah. <laughs> full of bluffs. And halfway through the second one, I find the tweet that enrages me before I've even properly woken up, you know, and I've hammered off something that's going to become a, an ongoing battle for the next of the day. But it but it's enough to kickstart the metabolism, you know. It what? would be nice if you could just detach the actual mechanism from your brain afterwards. I, but, uh, I think it was about late, late February or something. I think it was Vox, the American website, mm. were carrying a story that went something like um, trans operations, like gender reassignment surgery, to be considered non-essential in time of coronavirus epidemic. <laughs> uh, as if this was a terrible, you know, yeah. come on, there's a, you know, a, a shock. It's like, yeah. That would be the and then and then for about six weeks it went quiet and now of course it has picked up again. I mean the mate listing last night would be an example of that, I suppose, to some extent. Well, there's an article today uh, in the Independent that insinuated that uh, women, white women, having a crush on Rishi Sunak could actually yes. could actually be racist. Because uh, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's a sort of fetishization uh, of him. I, I don't see any. The Indian, it's okay to like. Yeah, I, I didn't see, but the problem is with, with a lot of these stances is that, that they always have a, a, a kind of built-in paradox where it sort of also challenges the idea that a white woman might just fancy an Asian bloke. It complicates that simple matter of, of sexual attraction that it has to it has to go back to the Raj somehow. Or, or it would be fine if they if they you know he also attacked every John Lewis ad that has a mixed race couple in it as being a sort of dog whisper, you know. I mean, dog whisper, dog whisper, yeah. dog whisper, slightly different, isn't it? <laughs> I, I've, I've discussed that on, on this podcast before, that the ubiquity of mixed-race couples in all advertising is so yeah. so ridiculously out of step with Britain as a country that I started to wonder if, if there was, if I a, it's supposed to be jarring and i.e. there's actually like a marketing reason for it, or, or yeah. that simultaneously loads of uh, advertising casting People think that they're doing something that's revolutionary that actually turns out to have created a generation of adverts that, that are just frankly, which is frankly incongruous, the amount of mixed-race couples. And, of course, you watch one and you don't mind, but if you watch... I mean, I hardly watch television at all and fast-forward through the adverts, you know, yeah. it tends to be on catch-up and all the rest of it. But you do notice at Christmas time all the major, literally every single major department store advertisement and all the big M&S ones and stuff yeah. seem to be mixed-race couples. And... You, you you did almost feel, are they trying to provoke me into saying something? Am I, you know, because I don't mind, but I can't help noticing it. Is, are you trying to make out like noticing it is bad? You almost feel like that. Yeah. But I can't, I can't believe that can be the case. And I think it must simply, I mean, it could simply be that you're trying to appeal to two demographics at once. But there's easily the same danger that both demographics, poss very possibly more the, the black population than the white population in that calculation, you know, would feel angry that you were sort of somehow suggesting that, for instance, this black guy was so successful and aspirational, he'd managed to get a white wife. Do you know what I mean? There was yeah. that kind of, you know, subliminal hint. 
But also but the style of... The, in high risk. I think all it is is the equivalent of what I believe was genuine in the case, that on ITV, I don't know if it still is, they would literally put the volume up slightly when the adverts came on because you might have been sort of slightly dozing off during the programme and they wanted to wake you up and jar you awake a little bit. And I think it might just be that it, if you can be just slightly jarring, yeah. it wakes you up and you start watching the advert a bit more instead of it just being a sort of snoozathon as we look at the price of some kettles, you know. Well, I think, but the funny thing is, though, is if they wanted to be radical and they wanted to be more inclusive, like quite simply have a black couple or an Asian. Yeah, an Asian yeah. And in a weird, weird way, I, I find it, I sort of become like the independent sort of like think piece writer where I'm sort of thinking... Why are they scared of just putting a straight up black couple <laughs> in an advert? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, let's have a gay black male couple. Yeah, uh, uh, and just make that your John Lewis ad. With no, they don't have any friends or family that come around. It's just a, a, a black male gay couple having a nice uh, Christmas with or without their adopted children. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and let's see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Just on a, 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 a different, I had a guy from Chris, uh, Chris from London, who knew that you were on, yeah. and he 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 said he wanted to know if you have a faith. He couldn't tell, but he suspected that you might, and he just wondered. I mean, we don't really discuss like uh, atheism in comedy anymore. I mean, like that is the least binary divide in comedy. Uh, yeah, yeah. These days, the new atheism was a big thing, wasn't it, in comedy, and that generally around the turn of the century, and a lot of people said that sort of morphed into social justice because. Yeah. All the people who uh, identified with Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins and so on then sort of created a new religion for themselves, which was which was based on the idea of cosmic justice. But um, I was raised in the Church of England, but not very um, uh, orthodox or whatever the word is, observational and um, observant. And observational. <laughs> <laughs> That's the comedic <laughs> wing of the uh, Church yeah. of England. I remember my dad telling me at quite an early age, maybe eight or nine, saying, Listen, the Bible is these are great stories that tell you something about what it is to be alive and, and how to live your life and, and morality and so on. But they are basically stories, right? Don't don't think that this is, you know, this is not really, you know, uh, truthful and and you should not sort of try and incorporate this as a truth that you have to incorporate into the real world. In the same way, I mean our son, I know that this sounds a bit trite maybe, but our son was sort of eight or nine years of age. My wife was still quite determined that he should carry on believing in Father Christmas. And <laughs> I was saying they are trying to teach him at school, you know, about yeah. geography and about and about science, you know, and about about <laughs> some of the hard realities of the world you live in. And yet and yet you're trying to impose on, you know, I think, you know, you should let that stuff go quite early on. But for all of that, I do think there's a lot to be said for things like, you know, the great Catholic rituals, the, yes, the humility yeah. that's, in, that's at the heart of it, and the magnificence of the cathedrals, which can only happen when people come together to raise an edifice to something greater than any one of them or, or even than their own. I mean, I, know, I remember... I remember, like you say, like there was that period where a lot of comedians, it went right up to the mid to late noughties where it, people would still yeah. get off on being atheists to a point. But then yeah. I, I remember I went to Rome and then I looked at all the, the, the incredible uh, uh, sort of religious buildings there. And I just sort of thought like this simplistic view that, that religion is of no worth. I sort of thought maybe like atheists should be barred from when they're tourists, they should be barred from the buildings. <laughs> Yeah, like if, we if, agree with Cafe Nero, yeah. Yeah, you go, all right, you go and have a look at a library and you can sit in a yeah. coffee shop, but you can't go anywhere near a cathedral. Um, 
Because it would just people be... like Peter Hitchens are very good on that. You know, the extent to which Christianity has inspired these incredible responses of art, you know, from mankind over centuries. And, and other myth has as well. I've just, funny enough, started watching a thing called The Power of Myth, which is Joseph Campbell. I don't know if you know him. I haven't heard of him, no. Joseph Campbell wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces that was the inspiration for a slightly more widely read book called The Hero's Journey, written by Christopher Vogel. And that was, that was basically the template for 98% of Hollywood. Um, what's his name? George Lucas credited uh, oh, I have Joseph heard, Campbell uh, yeah. for, for inspiring Star Wars. His understanding of the universality of myth and the hero's journey and what you have to go through and what, what can be achieved and what has to be overcome, what slaying the dragon really means, all that kind of stuff. You know, comparative myth, comparative religion is as, as deep and worthwhile a study as you can make of anything, I think. You know, you just have to understand to some extent the context in which you've been brought up in a particular religion, which might no longer really have anything more than an historical trace in the civilization you find yourself in. You know, I mean, it's hard to be a Christian now. Christianity really evolved in a, such a different era. The stories might resonate or they might not, but they are kind of absurd. You know, I remember that hitting me in a, in a village country church, one we got married in a few years earlier that I went to for the Christmas night service, you know, and they started talking about Jesus in the, in the manger and so on. And obviously it's the most familiar story in the world to me, and yet suddenly it just struck me with all its power how absurd it was, all these wealthy middle-class people standing there in their, you know, nice winter coats, you know, <laughs> tending to pretending to have any kind of truck with that, you know, and that's kind of sad in a way. I don't know how myths have to evolve to to continue to support us, but we do need them. I mean, eight, eight or nine years old for Father Christmas is, I mean, it's at the top end. There's also like, you know, yeah. th there's that one for breastfeeding where, you know, there are some, I mean, there is, I think if you can... He was only too happy to knock that on the head, I can tell you. <laughs> um, I think, I've always thought with breastfeeding, if you can stand up and latch on, that's too, that's bad. Like, if you're tall enough... You can latch on without having to sit on the lap. Yeah, yeah, if you don't have to be cradled and you could just do it sort of casually, like you're going to the fridge, then, then, then it's probably time to move on. I've got another uh, question for you here. This is from. Uh, this is about the police. We sort of touched on this this earlier. This is from um, Andy. I don't know where he's from, but he used to work in recruitment, and he's now worried about police recruitment policy and wondered what your view was. Traditionally, police needed to be strong, fit, and brave to tackle criminals, but most of the emphasis now uh, is on uh, dressing up and performing and virtue signaling. And uh, should should, yeah. should police recruit? I mean, he, his pointed question at the end is: is should police recruiters start recruiting from performing arts colleges? That's <laughs> uh, very funny. Yes, uh, I mean, as a satirical point, it certainly lands, doesn't it? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, like, a, I like the end. Yeah, yeah, there's an obituary of um, I was I think his name was Jack Nipper Reed. Was it Nipper Reed who had been the um, He'd been the, the officer assigned to the Cray twins in the 60s and finally brought them to justice after many years of humiliation and, and frustration and so on. He was he died this week, aged I think about 93. He was too short, it said in the obituary in the course of it, to join the Nottinghamshire police where the height restrictions demanded you were six foot tall to join the police. Jesus Christ. Six foot tall. I mean, that is 
pretty exceptional by any standards, let alone those which must have prevailed in the sort of nutritionally challenged 1940s or 30s or whatever it would have been. Yeah. Uh, well, 50s, I guess, he would have tried to join roughly. It, I mean, I, I wrote a piece about, about the police recently, and, and one of the things I was saying was it's extraordinary how much more powerful those big cardboard cutouts are that look like Christopher Reeve in uniform, you know, <laughs> that you see in... Um, in service station forecourt windows yeah. which, that's got you thinking, you make you think twice about driving off without paying compared I'm, to actually encountering a live police officer such as they are today, you know, seeing one in the queue buying his tricks. I they, mean, are, it, they are it, very physically impressive and, and I do wonder whether it wouldn't be a good idea if we couldn't get a few more, but I don't, I don't know whether it's recruitment policy or whether... You know, there was a theory... Um... But does this not go through a, a way of a sort of, I mean, it's for, for want of a better word, a sort of a feminisation of culture, which sort of can, yeah. can quite easily gloss over the the, the importance... Yeah, the requirement of, for the job, yeah. Yeah, the, physic, well, my, the my physical heft. Is, my worry is that, the, um, that the, the new recruitment policies are an acknowledgement of the reality of the sort of people they're going to be able to get now, because I just don't know... I mean, you see a few scaffolders and stuff who might have fitted the old mold, but you know, we don't we don't breed them like that anymore. Yeah, <laughs> you, know? yeah. you know, it's like C.S. Lewis, men without chests. You know, the abolition of man. If you're not going to, you know, you breed men without chests, and then you're then you bid them go forth and be fruitful, and it's not going to work. You know, so I don't know what um, what the answer is to that. I would definitely. Like any man of my age, I imagine, who is not actively involved in criminal enterprises anyway, you know, love to see more strapping, physically impressive and imposing young men patrolling the streets and just giving yeah. us the sense that everything, you know, God was in his heaven and all was right with the world. But if you can't recruit them, I suppose you have to bend the rules and then post-rationalise it to make it sound inclusive rather than, you know, well, I'm sorry, lads, but this is what we've got now. Having said all of that, I suppose there is some strength some perhaps force to the argument that if there has just been this general collapse in testosterone and, and masculinity across the whole of society the police aren't as necessary as they used to yeah be that's true it. i mean mur murder rates aren't as you know kicking off after closing time and stuff i mean murder rates have been going down for a while there are already occasional yeah. spikes in violent crime i wonder from the piece's point of view i mean in terms of like the, the main public service sectors they are very much a poor relation in terms of of never never having the public here i mean if you think back to like at the back end of the Iraq uh, and Afghanistan invasion, there was a lot yeah. of outpouring of appreciation for the armed forces, help for heroes. I mean, the yeah. truth—the truth is, I, I did a lot of gigs out there. Some of them were amazing. They weren't all heroes. Some of them, you know, on Camp Bastion, some of them were literally padding around admin nerve centres with their their mug of world's greatest dad on it, and and with, with yeah. encountering less risk than you'd routinely encounter in like Bracknell, right? Um, but the public felt bonded to them. And then obviously the, the, NHS, yeah, yeah. the NHS is on a loop, teachers even from time to time. But the police, I don't remember a single time when the no. you, people said, you know what, we, you actually... There was actually a good deal. I don't know whether it was the majority, but there was certainly a significant minority who enjoyed watching Theresa May putting them back in their kennels. Do you remember that? I think that was about 10 years ago. She yeah. gave a speech informing them that they're various pay claims and so on were not going to be met with a you know with a, with a open arms by the traditional party of law and order and everyone was like yeah go on to raise you tell them bloody filth you know i mean it's it is odd you're right i don't know why i suppose because there is it it does feel and and i'm god knows you might get emails about this and i might as well but it does feel as though when they can 
they avoid putting themselves in harm's way and prefer to, to you know, stand in a lay-by on the A23 and catch a bloke who's doing 82 miles an hour at the, at the dual carriageway, you know, at 10 o'clock at night rather than, you know, walking, pounding the beat, which is boring work. But, but Well, I suppose it's just the, the law of averages is that your most likely encounter with the police is a bad one, isn't it? You were getting told yeah, off yeah. for doing something. Um, yeah. in, a, in a situation where you were a victim of crime... Uh, yeah. th- there's very very low resolution rates. I mean, like a lot of people's perception of the police will be your average person will be when you're doing a speed awareness course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and th- that'll be the only time you have, and you're looking... Right, letting you down slowly when you report a burglary, explaining it to you as gently as possible, you know, that nothing is going to happen, it's not going to be investigated, you know. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear you've been a victim of crime, and then basically you've got 38 emails to read, and they, and they described to you the conversation they had with the 15-year-old truant who was down from the weekend, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, <laughs> and all you've really done is, like, is like drag out the misery for anything. <laughs> you know, we, when, when Rahul Moat was lionised, despite having killed a female police officer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this yeah. is... And blinded one, if, didn't he, if I remember? I think so, yeah. And you think, like, this, this happened quite a while ago. You think, what... I suppose it's a result of, of successive narratives within a family unit and, and a social unit that just lead to a point where, you know, in the same way that, that, that people perpetually reinforce the idea that all Tories are moustache twiddling baddies, is that yeah, yeah. it's yeah. just it's just written into the psyche that you you, you we just have so can't... many out-of-date stereotypes about these things. It's hilarious that what burglars look like and, and, and what police officers are like and, and what desk sergeants are like and all the rest of it, all outdated. Raoul Moat had yeah. that. I mean, he was a real archetype, wasn't he? He was holed up like Ned Kelly or something, wasn't he, in his bush, yeah, you yeah. know, and there was... Gaza with his chicken and all the rest of it. I mean, it was an extraordinary story. It was colourful, you know, and you, you can't just have utter contempt for somebody who's at the heart of such an incredible story. But um, but you're right, we do lionise all the wrong people, you know, anyone who gives us a good story. And, of course, the North East, I suppose, had that sort of sense that even, you know, even though obviously it's not true, there's a sense that the coppers, you know, that the, the villains are local, but the coppers are a wing of an arm of Westminster, you know, the provisional wing of the government. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's always going to tip the balance in that direction. Uh, we just got one last uh, uh, letter here. Um, is is I think somebody's using the, the new leadership of the Labour Party and the temporary leadership of the Conservative Party to revive the old hypothetical political fight. Uh, and it would be, this is from Karen in Hastings, who says, uh, who would win in a fight between Dominic Raab and Keir Starmer? And I, ha- I haven't done any of these for a while, but I think we're talking about two very si- physically equipped, you know, yeah. similar specimens here. So yeah. Raab known for pushing weights, quite hench, you know, yeah. good shoulders, good arms, good chest. But the, Keir- uh, the, the cheerleader of the left, Marina Hyde, described him as a magnet kitchen salesman on, on roids, I think, didn't she? Something like that. <laughs> Roid-fueled, yeah. <laughs> but he's he looks like he's got the, the anger, but as is often the case with men that have inflated their torsos to that to that degree, they're not necessarily, they haven't caught up with how to use that strength, whereas I'd say... Star- no, it might be cumbersome, he might be lumbering, it's true. And Starmer's body shape, I, I, I think, is quite consistent, so... I, I, it's a tricky one to call here. Tricky one. 
Starmer's had plenty of time as a practicing Barrison QC, isn't he, if I'm right? Before he was like Attorney General, whatever, is that right? True, true. Pugilistic Quite sort of... adversarial, yeah, yeah. Yeah, can keep his composure in, in the... I mean, if I was just going by physiognomy, I'd definitely give it to Rob. I don't think Starmer looks like a fighter at all. I mean, I've got that wrong in the past, but, you know, I was quite interested to see that artificial intelligence has proven itself capable of reading quite a lot of detail into people's faces. And I think we are too, if we allow ourselves to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Realise it's not politically correct. When I look at Starmer, I would, I can't imagine ever thinking it's probably time to back off here, Simon. Do you know what I mean? If I was to <laughs> find myself in a row with him, I would let it run its course. Whereas Rob, if he'd had a couple, I would probably, I would probably find uh, I had something more important to attend to at the other end of the pub eventually. Well, start. But Rob looks like the kind of guy that obviously he's got a a a, a personality type that's likely to wind people up. So he would have had to develop. He would. Have, I just think he would have simply had more fights. <laughs> I remember there were. About bunch of sort of fairly hard blokes at school that I genuinely admired and wanted to hang out with and I found the way I could get a reaction out of them and make them notice I existed was to wind them up and and, and then I would often go too far and end up getting clouted but I, I did <laughs> in a sort of a, a particular sort of point in my masochistic development prefer that to just being ignored it was weird and it did eventually work you know I did sort of work my way into that circle and uh, get to hang out with the lads in the army greatcoats, you know, or the RAF greatcoats, actually, it was in that era. I remember there was one occasion where I was, there was a group of lads from a travelling community that were permanently settled near where we live, and he just guy just kept coming to find me and kicked the shit out of me. And, um, <laughs> and, and on one occasion, they cornered me, and uh, his brother said, his name, the kid's name was Tucker, and he was about to hit me again, and his, his brother said, use your head, Tucker. And I honestly thought that his brother was basically saying, come on, this is ridiculous, we're all young men, why, why are we fighting? And then he head-butted me, but one of the things that I have been blessed with is I got, and my son has the same, is, is what I call just a coconut head, really hard head, and, it, and he, 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 he split open, but I remember him just looking like I'd, I'd sort of really? concealed, concealed, a, concealed a horseshoe in my, my, box, my boxing glove like that. Like it wasn't yeah. fair. He'd been victimised well, me. Well, a head, but it should never be to the other bloke's head, should it? You're supposed to go for the bridge of the nose. I mean that, and then it is an absolute killer blow. But you know, if you just go head to head. Yeah, I back myself in a headbutting fight yeah. with with anybody. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, as ever, Simon, it's, it's lovely to have a chat, mate, and. Uh, I hope that uh, obviously you know. I, I know that we're still. Oh, you you do. I know you're doing a, a Patreon thing and stuff like that. Can people... I've got a Patreon, uh, which um, is is evolving all the time. It's only been up for a couple of weeks, but at the moment it's largely archive and occasional sort of um, essays, blog posts, that kind of stuff. But I'm also posting a load of stuff from the last 25 years that I've worked in comedy, old radio recordings, and scripts that never quite, quite got completed and stuff. So if anyone is interested in my work. Um, you know, as a as a sort of body of work, as an evolving uh, process, then um, I think there's there's a lot in there to be enjoyed. Yes, and uh, uh, you can find that on my Twitter feed at the moment. That's it's the Simon Evans at Patreon, I think, or just go to it's my pin tweet on Twitter. Yeah, uh, well worth checking out. And I, I should say, I don't know if you're you're aware of it from uh, the listener's point of view, but there's been a beautiful bird song in the background throughout here. So if uh-huh. you know, we all have we all have a brand in comedy, and I think that if <laughs> if I would I would not hold it against you if that if that was artificial because it's it, I think it's, I think it's played <laughs> yeah, out very I well. That these that the boy races were going to be the main uh, sort of background noise, but if you can hear birdsong, that's wonderful. Birdsong and the occasional birdsong and the occasional car is exactly the image that I want to have of you at the end of a <laughs> a Skype. Lovely. 
Brilliant. All right, cheers, cheers for that, Simon. Thanks for coming on the Absolute show. Absolute pleasure, Jeff. Really is. Anytime. Okay, so that it was the chat with Simon. And thanks so much to him for coming on the show again. And yeah, check out his Patreon. And I'm just going to finish the show as I normally do by um, looking at the reviews on iTunes. Okay, so hopefully, as ever, I always forget to check before whether anybody's actually done one. So I run the risk of being mortified here. But uh, but yeah, I get a few reviews. I read out as many of the five-star ones as I can. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to read out the, the other ones. Why, why would I do that? Um, so this one is shout-out required from this is AFC Wimbledon Hole. Um, it sort, sort of reads like arsehole. But not if he's an AFC Wimbledon fan. It said, this is from Jason. So Jason, I'm going to presume he's like me. South London. South. You can't. Uh, Hi, Jeff. I searched funny pods as I needed something to brighten up these gloomy times. Good news. Your pot hit the spot. Cheers, Jason. Brackets. AFC Wimbledon. Uh, Jason, I don't know about you, mate, but uh, I'm sort of hoping the season gets cancelled, if you know what I mean. We weren't doing that well, were we? Uh, this is a five-star review uh, from Dan or Danj or Dan J or Danj. I don't know. Is that like where one of those Eastern European names it just has a J in, in somewhere? Like you wouldn't expect, like Danji, Dan seventy five. He says the UK, the UK needs more Jeff Norcott on TV and radio, and also more wine. Um, I, I agree with all that. Uh, this is from Thorpey, um, who called me potty mouth fun. Uh, we have no idea of where uh, potty mouth where Thorpey comes. Am I? I'm tired now, aren't I? I've started to really fuck up in the last bit of this. Uh, great podcast as ever, Jeff May. I suggest the only other right wing comic. Uh, as guest Alistair Williams. Well, may I suggest I've already done a chat with Alistair. We did it uh, in in the autumn. So go back and have a have a look at that. You'll we aim to please. Uh, I saw Jeff and he was. This is from. Oh, it doesn't really have a name. I'm going to do a scouse section for this one because they use the word chuffing. I saw Jeff in Edinburgh and he was chuffing brilliant. Often immature, but what is about often immature? Often immature, but one of the few stand-ups who treats his audience like adults. He deserves advertising on this excellent podcast. That enough to read it out on the Joe show, Jeff, you needy bugger. Oh, and then at the end it says Barry from Sheffield. Do a Sean Bean voice. Fucking hell, I've got to read it again. I saw Jeff in Edinburgh and he was chuffing. I don't know what Sean Bean sounds like. Um, we've got one more review here. This is from Willie Bob, 83. I mean, Willie Bob, that has got to be a Deep South accent, hasn't it? Will Bob 83, refreshing and a nice change from the tsunami of lefty London liberal tap. Even better in person, so I recommend his gig too. Actually is what people think. So there you go. I will be back with another podcast. These podcasts are going to stay weekly, at least for as long as we're uh, in lockdown. And they may be the only work that I have left at a point. So, you know, Simon's got his Patreon going. I'm just saying brace yourselves. It might not be long before the Jeff Norcott podcast page is with you. Because, you know what I mean, I'm not, I don't want to put, do the guilt trips, but my son, is, I can see his rib cages. You know, I'm just, I'm just saying the dog is licking condensation off the window. I don't want to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying my wife is, is wearing potato socks. I'm just saying...
Thank you.